school and was always on the lookout for opportunities to share my faith with my See that I was probably a bit overzealous really and could have well have been a bit of a pain going on and on about my Christian faith to anyone who cared to listen. One boy who did listen uh, was a student I sat next to in year 11 geography. He seemed to love hearing the stories from the Bible that I happily shared with him while we were colouring in maps. I, he particularly liked the story of God's call to Moses via the burning bush and he kept asking me to tell him that story again and again and again. And I took this as a really positive development. It was only a few years later that I was forced to reconsider that assessment when that particular boy was arrested by the police for being a serial pyromaniac. He'd led a gang of youths who terrorised the suburbs of Kew by setting fire to people's cypress hedges. Well, a couple of weeks ago, Karen, uh, when she started this sermon series, mentioned the results of last year's census and how they presented a bit of a challenge to the church. In the last 10 years, Christianity has gone from 61% of the population in 2011 to 52% of the population in 2016 to 44% of the population in 2021. So for the first time in the history of white settlement, the majority of Australians now don't identify as a Christian. And if you have a look at that graph, it kind of looks fairly depressing. Um, I was reading an article, Tim Costello, who's probably one of our more prominent Christian um, commentators in the, in the secular press, he wrote an article about the census results and how, you know, he kind of knew that this was coming, but it still depressed him a little bit. And he shared a great comment that his kids had made some years ago about him and said, Dad, is there any campaign you're part of that actually ever wins? So as Karen pointed out when uh, she was sharing the results of this, on the one hand, those census results are not a surprise to us. We know we're in the minority in society. But on the other hand, it's hard not to feel like Tim Costello and, and just feel a bit discouraged about this. The church that we love is in decline. And I think we're realistic enough to know that the statistical decline in the church uh, when it comes to Christianity hasn't come to an end yet and that we're in for further bad news in censuses to come. And of course, we'd all desire to share, uh, we all share that desire to turn that figure around. We don't want churches to close down due to lack of numbers. We know firsthand the joy, the hope, the great blessing that comes from knowing God, and we want others to share this joy, hope, and blessing as well. So how to arrest the decline is a question that's really occupying a lot of energy and thought in the church at present. I think perhaps 15 to 20 years ago, there was a bit of a sense that if we just got the right leadership, if we just came up with the right program, if someone just wrote the right book, or we came up with that perfect worship song, then things would turn around. And I think we now know that it's not quite going to be that simple. Church isn't going to turn around if we just simply start offering Tim Tams after the service. But that wouldn't be a bad idea in my view either. But in our reading today, I think we get an insight into how the Apostle Paul would say that we can turn things around. By striving to be a genuine community who show God's love to all we encounter. So our reading is from Paul's letter to the Colossians. And Paul's writing to a group, uh, a really fledgling Christian community. They're all new believers trying to work out what following Jesus looks like in practice in their society. One of the things they do know for certain is that this Christian community looks like nothing else in their society at the time. The church is a group that gathers not because they come from the same class or the share the same type of job or have the same social status, 
Rather, they gather because they share a common belief. And this common belief is a transformative belief. It changes lives. And because it changes lives, it changes societies. People from all walks of life come together. And because of this shared transformative belief, they meet as equals. And some historians have argued that the church is the first time in human history that this ever happened, that people met as equals. Nowadays, we're quite used in the society that we live in to people from different groups coming together. You can see this all the time at sporting events, for example. But back in Paul's day, it was incredibly radical. You get reminded of this whenever you choose to look at any aspect of life in ancient society, even something as simple as toilets. As well as Colossae, Paul wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus. And you can go and visit the ruins of Ephesus if you go to Turkey to this day. And one of the things that you can go and look at, and you can see that has survived to this day, is their public toilets. They're one of the first examples of public toilets that we have in human history. And here's the picture. We all know that one of the profound challenges of modern life is sitting on a cold toilet seat in the middle of winter. It's a problem now. It was a problem back then. As you can see, they're actually made of stone, so it would have been really cold. But wealthy Romans had an easy solution to this. They sent their slave on in advance to warm their seat up for them. I kid you not. So when you were ready to do what you had to do, you went down, and also the advantage of sending a slave down is they bagged your spot as well there, and it was warm. And we've got examples, and this just seems extraordinary to us, we've got examples of wealthy Romans. So the youngest slave traditionally had the terrible job like this, and they would often spend the entire day down there waiting if the master chose to go and use those toilets. And they may not, but they'd have to spend the whole day just sitting there in the off chance the master decided to use it. And of course, just warming up the seat wasn't the end of your job. No toilet paper in ancient Rome. So the slave was the one who had to ensure that you were clean and tidy afterwards. And they used a a stick with a sponge on the end. And apologies for going into a bit of detail here, but you'll get my point in a minute. And this stick with the sponge on the end, it actually accounts for, you've heard of that saying, getting the wrong end of the stick. Well, it comes from this particular thing. And apologies for all this unpleasantness, but what it does do, I think it really shows how radical the church was. Slaves and masters who are at such completely different ends of the social hierarchy during the week gathered on a Sunday as equals. They shared a meal together, not slaves serving masters, not just the men gathering to discuss important stuff while the women were banished. They all sat around together, shared the meal together as equals. Genuine community became a defining feature of the early church and it helps account for why it had this such phenomenal growth. It's interesting to reflect on where we reckon we experience genuine community these days. Our society goes on about community all the time, but yet our society is also structured in a way that actually seems to work against genuine community. The main challenge to developing genuine community is that we live in this really highly individualistic culture. And you often don't realise how individualistic we are in Western culture until you start comparing us to other cultures. I really like the story that's told of when they first introduced the standardised IQ test many years ago. So to make sure this IQ test uh, was, was a good one, they made lots of different people sit it to get a sense of how different ages and different people responded. And they also got different groups in society to sit the test as well. And they asked a Native American tribe to take the test. 
So the examiner sat them all down, each one behind an individual desk, and asked them to complete the test in the set time. And as soon as the time started, they all got up and started um, comparing answers and sharing, and the examiner kept having to intervene, saying, no, 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 this has to be your own individual work. You've got to fill this out by yourself. And the Native Americans just couldn't get their head around that idea, individual work. To them, all knowledge was shared knowledge, was community knowledge. The idea that you had individual knowledge, they just couldn't get their head around. Our individualistic culture is also a highly competitive culture. I think you would have heard the story of the two young boys who are really good friends who finish up going for a walk in a forest in Canada. And they spend most of their day walking deep into the woods, exploring around, and eventually they find a cave. And they're pretty keen to explore the cave and they walk deeper and deeper into this cave. And just when they've made the decision that they've probably gone far enough and it's time to turn back, they suddenly hear a huge roar and realise that they've disturbed a grizzly bear. They run out of the cave, but the bear's really angry at being woken up and chases after them. So they're running as fast as they can through the woods. The bear's gaining on them. One boy yells out to the other, what do you reckon our chances are of outrunning this bear? And the other one says, outrunning the bear? Who says I need to outrun the bear? I just have to outrun you. Our society works by turning us into competitors. We are really profoundly driven in our societies to keep up with the Joneses. And I'm not just referring to uh, Susan Robert. Um, we have to uh, have the same sort of car that our friends do, go on the same sort of holidays that our friends do, send our children to the same type of school, deck our houses out in the same kind of decor. That drive to keep up with everybody else is pretty profound. Penny and I live near a Costco. This worked to our advantage uh, uh, during lockdown as it fell within our five-kilometre zone. But despite the fact that it's actually quite close, I have to say I don't really enjoy shopping at Costco. You have these absolutely massive trolleys, if you've ever been there, and it kind of feels like you're, you're sort of going to try and mow someone down. You're roaming the aisles aimlessly trying to work out what on earth it is you're supposed to be looking for. You finish up buying far too much, spending money you don't have to imp impress people that you don't even like. It's a bit of a tricky one. Um, the last time I was there in the, on the holidays, I actually encountered John uh, Bryant, and um, John was there, and I could just... When I walked in with my big trolley and I was sort of stealing myself for the shopping task ahead, I could just see this guy who was having great fun testing out one of these ridiculously large cushions that they had by picking up his kids and throwing them in. And it turned out to be John. And John was having a great time. And I, as I finished up my shop at Costco, I thought, wow, that's the first time I've seen someone smiling in Costco. Shopping at Costco feels a long way from genuine human connection and community. Despite the challenges, genuine community is something that people really long for in society. And the great news is, of course, we have this in abundance here in our church. We're part of our church community, but of course we're also part of numerous other communities, work, school, sport, family, friends. And these communities form an important part of our front line in terms of where our Christian faith engages with the world. The other week before the service, I was having a chat with Karen, and we were talking about something that we're both kind of quite passionate about, and that's ministry to young people. And we were reflecting on the challenges of ministering to young people in this day and age, and how times have changed so much, so that lots of the opportunities that perhaps the church did have 20 years ago have been lost to us now. But Karen was reminding me of the great ministry that the current generation of grandparents are having, as they look after their grandkids. So... 
think times have changed, but one of the things, of course, that hasn't changed is that grandparents are still spending time with grandkids. And that's a great opportunity for them to share their love of God with their grandkids. Another thing that hasn't changed is that church people like us spend a significant part of our week in various communities that are largely populated with unchurched people. And I know that many of us find being a Christian witness in our community a bit of a challenge. We often feel like we're not great examples of the Christian faith, especially because we live in an age where the Christian faith is really put under the microscope like never before. And sometimes we can feel like uh, how we live out our faith doesn't stand up to close inspection. And I feel this especially as a chaplain in an Anglican school when I'm having to deal with a difficult uh, year six boys class period six on a Friday and I start fanging kids, I'm thinking, oh gee, I'm not a great example of Christian love at this point. We can all feel a long way from the super happy Christian who has their life all together and is a 24-7 shiny happy person who's such an outstanding witness that they just have to walk into the room and people start becoming Christians. Our lives are messy. We might have our moments, but we're all aware that we often let the side down. Well, the good news is that God doesn't ask us to have our act 100% together before he can use us. He simply asks for us to be available to be used by him. Our reading has this wonderfully simple but powerful phrase in verse 13, bear with one another. Some of the most important work of church happens after the service has ended, where we share our week uh, together over coffee. And it happens in our connect groups, where we share and we pray for each other, bearing with one another. Bearing with each other, admitting we can't do it by ourselves, and asking God for help. And so often God's help comes in the form of fellow believers caring for us. I hope Karen doesn't mind me um, sharing this, but uh, you might remember a couple of weeks ago before the Jews went on holidays, um, or not Karen, sorry, Erin, Erin was sharing, she was worship leading, and um, she came across someone who was in dire need of a holiday, it's fair to suggest. She shared quite openly up the front about how she'd had a difficult week, and uh, and she was really looking forward to the holiday break. And I came away from that church service um, just thinking this is a great community because I really like the way the church leaders can be honest and open in front of each other. Uh, we don't worship perfection. We worship a God who reveals himself most fully in brokenness on a cross. And you might be aware that some churches recently have got into a lot of trouble because they can put their leaders on pedestals and when they are shown to be human, uh, it's a terrible thing. One of the great things about the Anglican Church is none of us are getting put on pedestals. It's, it's a, you know, I know we're very blessed to have Karen and Mark, but apart from that, most of the Anglican ministers you look at, you think, Whew. Um, and I've talked about, I've talked about how times have changed. That's been difficult for the church. I think one of the really good things about the way times have changed is that there is much less of a sense that you know the ministers, the people, have got it all together and the lay people, the people who haven't got it together, and, you know, literally, it used to be, I'm closer to God as the minister. I'm standing, you know, closer to God, and you guys are further away. And the geography of the church actually reflected sort of how we thought theologically. But now, I think there's much more of an understanding of we're all in it together, open and honest with each other. It's a challenge. We all admit our failures, and we help each other along the way. And I think that's, that's a really good thing especially in light of this. So I'll ask um, Karen if you can bring up this uh, picture. So the Anglican Church in America just did a survey recently about how Christians in that country are perceived. And you might be aware, of course, that uh, sort of Christianity in America is much more deeply embedded than it is here in Australia. 
And so they did this survey, which was pretty revealing. So this is how Christians in America like to perceive themselves. On the left here, giving, compassionate, loving, respectful, friendly and honest, all great things. But on the right is how people who aren't religious perceive Christians in America. Hypocritical, judgmental, self-righteous, arrogant, unforgiving, selfish, disrespectful. It's not a great list. And the only way we can kind of turn around those perceptions is to be genuine in our faith with the people, the communities that we're embedded in. So we saw from that census graph that uh, we face a big task in turning around the decline in the church. But turning it around isn't actually our task, it's God's task. He simply asks for our help. Turning around the decline in the church may be feeling like I'm inviting you to try and eat a dinosaur. Where on earth would you start? But I was reminded in an online seminar I was at recently, how do you eat a dinosaur? One bite at a time. So thinking about our frontline community, what bit of the dinosaur are you chewing on right at this moment? Who has God put on your heart to be gently talking to, sharing with, caring for? Who are you chewing on for God? It can be a bit disheartening when we focus on the big picture when it comes to the church, but when we focus down on our little patch of the kingdom that God has called us to, I think things are a little bit more encouraging. Sometimes we get to see the difference our words and actions make in the life of non-believers, and sometimes we never know how God is going to use the seed that we plant to blossom in a person's life. I was reading just this week about a story of a Queensland man, Scott Dowman, And he'd worked as a journalist for many years, but he felt that God was calling him to serve him in a different way. He went to Bible college and he went on a few short-term mission trips to Thailand, he and his family. And he got involved with a group in Thailand who were trying to protect at-risk children from being sold into child slavery. He he started sponsoring this uh, Burmese boy, Adul, to learn English and to get a good education. Now, Adul was part of a soccer team. And one day, after a soccer game, these boys decided to explore a nearby cave. When they were exploring the cave, and they were deep in the cave, this storm came up, cave system flooded, and they found themselves trapped. And you will have no doubt heard the story of their rescue that made headlines around the world. Well, Adul finished up playing a really important part in that rescue, because he was the only one of those trapped boys who could speak English, and therefore communicate with the rescuers. Adul is now in the US studying to be a doctor, all thanks to the godly influence of an Australian bloke. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience. Doesn't our world desperately need more of this? And guess what we have in abundance in our life in Christ, according to Paul? Love the place God has called you to. Love the people in the place God has called you to and genuinely try and live out your faith to the best of your ability. Keep chewing on that bit of the dinosaur that God has called you to chew on. So, chosen by God for this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe God's picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline. Be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offence, Forgive as quickly and completely as the Master forgave you. And regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic all-purpose garment. Never be without it. Let the peace of Christ keep you in tune with each other, in step with each other. None of this going off and doing your own thing. 
and cultivate thankfulness. Let the word of Christ have the run of your house. Give it plenty of room in your lives. Instruct and direct one another using good common sense. And sing, sing your hearts out to God. Let every detail in your lives, words, actions, whatever, be done in the name of Jesus. Thanking God the Father every step of the way. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, often coming to church on a Sunday can perhaps feel a bit like a retreat from the world and a retreat from uh, all the challenges that we face during the week. But we're mindful, Lord God, that you call us to be in the world. You call us to be part of the communities that you've called us to. And we rejoice and give thanks for the people that we mix with during the week, those people who don't know you. We know that it's challenging times for the church, but we give thanks for the little patch of the kingdom that you have called us to, the people that we're sharing our lives with. We know we're not the best examples at times, but we know we're better because you are with us. Help us to share in the highs and lows of life with the people around us, gently sharing your love, taking the time to care, taking the time to listen, taking the time to be a faithful witness. Thanks God that you open the doors for us Give us the strength to go through them when you open them for us. Amen.